Welcome to FedSpeak, brought to you by MI Market News. I'm Jean Young in Washington. Today is Jobs Day. This morning, the Labor Department reported that employers hired another 263,000 workers in September, and the unemployment rate fell back to 3.5%, a very strong report, even as interest rates are rising rapidly to fight inflation. To help us understand all of this, it's my pleasure to welcome Nicola Petrosky Nadeau from the San Francisco Fed to talk about the U.S. labor market. He's vice president of macroeconomic research at the Fed, advising President Mary Daly on policy matters, and his academic work has looked at friction in labor and other markets. Thanks so much for being here, Nicola. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be able to speak with you this morning. We see that the pace of hiring is slowing. Job growth has averaged 420,000 this year, down from 562,000 a month in 2021. Job openings also fell about 10% in August. It's the biggest one-month decline since the start of the pandemic, and layoffs rose a little bit. Is the labor market starting to cool, in your opinion? Certainly, when you look at the rate of unemployment that we saw in today's jobs report, 35 back where it was prior to the pandemic, one of the the lowest unemployment rates we've seen in in half a century, the labor market continues to be very strong. And as you mentioned, the jobs report again, showed signs of a strong uh, labor market. 300,000 jobs uh, gains per month more recently is still a strong month to month gain. To put that into perspective, before the pandemic, we were typically uh, gaining 90,000 jobs a month. So the magnitudes are still, even if they've come down from from half a million a month that you mentioned last year, it's still substantial uh, employment growth. The other thing that's interesting is that the gains have really been broad-based. We see uh, many sectors of economic activity today are at employment levels above where they were before the pandemic. Of course, one sector stands out in which that is not the case, leisure and hospitality, the sector that was really hard hit by the pandemic, still has a a ways to go before recovering its level of of employment. But overall, um, the labor market is in a very good place. Another place I like to look at is the employment to population ratio. Mm -hmm. And the employment to population ratio, especially when we focus on the bulk of the workforce, prime age workers, has returned and has been back at pre-pandemic levels since earlier this year, since the spring. So if I take that all together, we're looking at a labor market that looks a lot like 2019, which was a very good labor market before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But as you mentioned, there's one area that really stands out as being different, and that's job openings. Just the extremely high level of job openings we've seen in the last, last year coming out of the pandemic. Even after the drop of about 1.2 million jobs in the latest JOLTS report for August, we're still at 10 million jobs um, that are firms are seeking to fill in the month of August compared to about 6 million unemployed in August. So really a a ratio of um, almost 1.6, 1.7 jobs per person looking for work. So that really looks like a a very tight labor market. Um, I am beginning to see in my, from my perspective, a few areas where there are slowdowns in the labor market. So beyond that headline drop in, in aggregate job openings. When I look a little bit deeper at job openings by industry, Mm -hmm. we have seen some slowdowns even earlier this year. 
certain sectors saw their peaks and job openings as early as December of 2021. So leisure and hospitality is a good example. Its job openings peaked in December of 2021. Another really large sector that posted a lot of job gain in the last two years is uh, professional and business services. Now its job openings peaked back in March of this year, March and April. Same for retail trade, which is a sector that we often look at in the jobs report. Its job openings peaked back in March. So in that sense, there are some initial signs of cooling in the labor market. Mm-hmm. If you say the labor market is is now very similar to where it was pre-pandemic, at that time, we had an unemployment rate that's at a 50-year low, and it was a very hot jobs market. The rhetoric now seems to be uh, it's overheated and it's an imbalanced in terms of demand and, and supply. How would you kind of square the two? We saw a bit of a language of imbalance in terms of demand and supply in 2018 and 2019 as well. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that conversation is entirely new. Back then, we heard from our our business contacts through reports in the Beige Book, um, many quarters of commentary on their difficulty hiring, um, many reports of lowering the requirements for jobs in order to fill positions. So I think that's actually a similarity with the labor market that we saw in 2019. Mm-hmm. One area that seems different, though, is just this, just simply the level of job openings mm-hmm. um, that, that really is, is quite unprecedented. Historically, the normal level for that has been around one-to-one, or can we expect a new normal? It's a little bit difficult to make historical comparisons mm-hmm. just because of the availability of data. So uh, the data that we've been quoting right now comes from the job openings and labor turnover survey, which the BLS started in December of 2000, which is not a very long historical uh, sample to get a sense right. of what was it like during past really strong labor markets, say, particularly in the 60s, which is mm-hmm. another period of an extremely tight labor market. We just don't have comparable data. The data we have for job openings in the 1960s is a proxy measure. Mm-hmm. It is a, an index of help wanted advertise, advertising in um, newspapers and Sunday papers from large metropolitan areas. That was a program that the conference board ran uh, since, uh, since 1960. And that index isn't directly comparable with the openings we have today. So it makes, makes historical comparisons of levels difficult to do. As we know, the Fed is raising rates at the fastest pace in decades to battle inflation. And almost all of the FOMC members saw another one percentage point raise in uh, rates before the year ends. How central are the wage dynamics in labor market performance to that inflation picture? I think it's certainly true that nominal wage growth has been very strong for the last year. I mean, we see it across industries, across occupations, for broad classes of workers. The trouble we've had, and this has been the part that's been difficult for, for households and families, is that inflation has been outpacing nominal wage growth. For the vast majority of workers, wages have not been keeping up with inflation. Mm -hmm. This means that for most producers, most employers, wage growth is currently not the main source of increases in cost pressures that are pushing them to increase their prices. They have other input costs that that have been been strained, supply constraints that have been strained. But for the moment, wage pressures is not the 
overwhelming concern with respect to their, their cost pressures. But the concern for businesses and for, for the Fed, Federal Reserve um, in general is the risk of, as inflation expectations become entrenched in people's psychology, begin more systematically expecting a certain rate of increase in nominal wages. And the concern is that if that gets embedded into the wage setting process, then down the line, it will become much harder to bring the overall rate of price inflation back to the sustainable uh, desired level of 2%. Mm -hmm. And there's some recent evidence by some of my colleagues, San Francisco Fed, that this is a more material risk today. So my colleagues, um, Ruven Glick, Sylvain Leduc, and Molly Paper wrote an economic letter in which they showed that, especially recently, short-term inflation expectations, household inflation expectations, have had a bigger influence on nominal wage growth. And so that just underscores the importance of bringing current inflation down rather quickly so that we households maintain uh, inflation expectations that are in line with uh, price stability. Mm-hmm. We have seen in some of the consumer surveys that households' inflation expectations have been pretty well anchored, to use the Fed term, in the five-year horizon, three-year horizon. It's just the near term that it's still pretty high. Knowing that there are long and variable lags to monetary policy, when would it be optimal for policy tightening to stop? Is is it when you get the first negative payrolls report or when you see some early signs of weakening labor demand? And what would you look for? As a Fed economist, I can speak to the signs of weakening the labor market that that I'm looking for and the ones that I'm looking for when I'm advising uh, my bank president. In terms of the decisions of the FOMC, I have to leave it up to them once we prevent them with the, the facts on the ground and, and our way of thinking about it. The signs that I'm re- really looking for are some of the ones we've already begun to, to talk about. And I think they're worth mentioning the first ones again. It's really when we dig deep, dig a little deeper into the sources of the drop changes in overall job openings across industries. The fact that some really key sectors that represent the bulk of employment have already peaked in terms of job opening. And I think magnitudes here are helpful. The JOLTS report came out, we did some calculations to get an idea of of the the pace of the slowdown. And if I take, for example, professional and business services, in the last four months, job openings have dropped 20%. That's a really, really large drop. If I look at retail trade over that same time period, it's dropped about 33, 34%. Again, these are really significant drops. And remember, leisure and hospitality peaked back in in December. And since December, over the last eight months, their drop of openings have been down 30%. So those are are indications that um, firms have taken on board the fact that the tightening cycle um, um, is going to be sustained and they're revising their hiring plans. From a, an economist standpoint, we often look at job openings as a signal of what businesses are seeing in terms of their future revenue, because it is a really forward-looking decision. They're planning for future production plans and the workforce they need to meet that demand. And if we're seeing a drop in, in their job openings, it means that in the, the medium term, the one, two-year horizon, they're expecting a slowdown in the demand that they're facing. And that's what the committee is looking for with the, with the tightening cycle. Mm-hmm. They're hoping that the increases in the cost of capital and are going to help rein in uh, the current level of demand. 
Another area I tend to look at a lot is the level of the quits rate from also from the jolts. And quits rates, I think you'll recall, garnered a lot of attention about a year ago when there was a big increase in the level of quits. And there a lot of commentary on whether or not there was a great resignation, which after digging through the data and, and some of us at the San Francisco Fed had looked at it at the time, Bart Hobain also wrote an economic letter describing uh, the importance of, of quits actually being movements to another job. And quits often represent precisely a very strong labor market in the sense that people are moving to better opportunities and often getting wage gains with those opportunities. So there's a lot of research that shows that the quits rate is a good predictor of real wage growth. So when we see high quit rates, we're, we're anticipating that wage growth is going to accelerate. Now, quits have been slowing down in the last, in the last six months. And if I recall correctly, it's pretty broad-based. Um, professional and business services, quits rate is back to where it was pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. The same with leisure. So I'm looking at those as indicators that the transmission of monetary policy is working as intended. And committee is on a good path towards um, witnessing a, an orderly slowdown in the labor market. Another kind of optimistic observation that some people have made is that because employers have had such a hard time hiring over the pandemic, they had to spend a lot of effort getting the workers that they have. Perhaps they're going to be a little more hesitant to let them go unless we get a super deep recession. And so maybe we won't get very bad layoffs this time around as hiring slows and the economy slows. What do you make of that argument? I'm sympathetic to that argument. I think the data for the moment sort of give credence to that view. Firms are lowering their job openings without increasing their separations. We haven't seen a material increase in the rate of layoffs. So I think that is that is a, a silver lining to the current slowdown. One other issue that has garnered a lot of attention is participation rate. Participation fell slightly in the past month again. And there's this narrative out there that firms can't find workers at the same time that no one wants to work. It's a bit of a puzzle, it seems. Do you think that it's coming to an end? And how do you expect that to evolve? I have a slightly different perspective. I don't entirely agree uh, with the, that narrative um, that the labor, the participation has not returned and Americans don't want to work. I don't think the, the data uh, support that, make the case for that very strongly. So I'll explain myself in a bit more detail. If we look at the overall labor force participation rate, so that's looking at the rate of participation for Americans over the age of 16. Mm -hmm. So that's including Americans who are over the age of 55 and close to retirement and exiting the labor force. We've also have a country that has a demographic structure that is moving towards a larger share of an older population as the baby boom moves into, into retirement age. And so that mechanically draws down the overall rate of labor force participation. And so simply the mechanics of aging explain almost all of the decline in labor force participation uh, that we're currently observing relative to where we were before the pandemic. Now, there are different ways that we can show this. One is to use uh, a synthetic labor force participation rate that we sometimes use at the San Francisco Fed, which controls for the changing age structure of the US population. And when we do that, what what we find is that the overall 
labor force participation today is pretty much where it was prior to the pandemic and where mm -hmm. it was um, in 2008, 2007. There's, uh, aging is, is, is really a, a strong force in the overall labor for, force participation rate. That's why my preference is to look at the participation rate, especially the employment to population ratio for workers between the ages of 25 and 54. And when I look there, the employment to population ratio is even just slightly above where it was prior to the pandemic. And it's really broad based across race and ethnicity, um, especially uh, for, for black and Hispanic uh, individuals. In the last eight months have seen a lot of employment gains that have uh, allowed them to, that those populations to see employment population ratios return to pre-pandemic levels. There was a lot of conversation, uh, and I did some work in this area during the pandemic on the impact of school closures on the drop in the labor force from by mothers. Now, that process unwound itself by 2021. So today, when we look at the data again, rates of participation in the labor market and employment population ratios for mothers have fully recovered mm -hmm. uh, to where they were prior to the pandemic. So I don't see additional workers in that category waiting on the side, sidelines. And there is one category that is lagging somewhat. That of course, those are, are workers with less than a, a high school education, but they're a a share of the overall population that has been declining a lot over the last 30 years as Americans have increased levels of educational attainment. There is, on the other hand, a separate note that we have been observing and an economist at UC Davis has written about is the fact that since 2017, there are, by his estimates, nearly 2 million missing working age adults that would have entered the country through immigration. And so that's a fairly large number of indiv individuals who otherwise would be in the labor market and potentially filling some of these excess job openings. Now, we, do, we don't know how that might evolve. One thing that we do know is that the interest rates are going up and the Fed has written in its economic projections that the unemployment rate is expected to rise a bit from where we are. Given what we know about the history of Fed-led recessions, how high can we expect the jobless rate to go in this cycle? So on this question, just recently, my um, colleague and good friend, Rob Valletta, and I have, have done some research and written a, um, an economic letter, along with two research associates, Mary Yilma and Brendan Bach, trying to think through what are potential scenarios for the unemployment rate during uh, this tightening cycle. But before I go into that, I, I, I want to push back a little bit on the premise of Fed-led recessions. Um, if you go back and look at tightening cycles, of, of all the tightening cycles since the early 1980s, um, in the first two years of tightening, the unemployment rate has tended to go down, not up. And there's just one exception, which is a tightening cycle that ended with the 2000 recession, which was a mild, a mild recession. So just on that, that little uh, level so on the narrative, what are the prospects for the unemployment rate during this tightening cycle? Well, going back again to vacancies, we went back and relied on the historical relationship between unemployment and vacancies in the data. There's a negative correlation often referred to as the beverage curve. So that's simply the observation that when vacancies are high, unemployment tends to be low. People are finding jobs and when vacancies are low, 
um, unemployment is high. Jobs are hard to find and people spend more time unemployed. But there's another key aspect to that relationship, which is that it is not, it's not linear. Meaning when vacancies go up, it becomes increasingly hard to find for those vacancies to find an additional worker. So for an added drop, percentage point drop in the unemployment rate, you need a tremendously larger increase in the vacancy, in the, in the job openings rate. So it's this curvature of the beverage curve that we believe, believe is potentially playing an important role right now for thinking through what might happen to the labor market as overall demand recedes and vacancies start, pull, firms start pulling their, their job openings. And so, we did a few calculations based on estimating uh, nonlinear beverage curves on recent US data. And our best fit suggests that the beverage curve is very steep at high rates of job openings and low rates of unemployment where we are right now. And what we had calculated was suppose job openings were to fall to the levels they were prior to the pandemic from where they are now. So if we had two and a half more months, for example, of a JOLF report as we did in August, we calculated that the unemployment rate would increase to about 4.4%, which kind of corresponds to the numbers that you're seeing in the FOMC's SCP in terms of where they see the, the unemployment rate settling. I mean, from the perspective of households, that's not a non-negligible increase in, in unemployment rate. That's a lot of potential uh, jobs that aren't being filled and, and individuals looking for work. But it is still um, an unemployment rate that historically remains relatively low. Right. That's a far cry from some estimates that are out there of 7% or, or higher. Yes. Well, I just want to ask you one last question. And this one, I'm sure you could talk about for an hour. What kind of permanent mark do you think the pandemic has, has left on us? Give us something to think about. Well, there are a couple, a couple things. I was pondering this question myself, and one of them is the change to work from home mm -hmm. and the flexibility that it affords. And it will take some time, and there's some initial research by Stanford economist Nick Bloom, for example, that indicates that in, for certain occupations, it leads to an increase in, in productivity. Um, people are able to get to focus on complex tasks with few interruptions. But others have argued that the evidence is mixed. There's um, opportunities for collaboration and innovation that require being in person and, and meeting around the cooler that are not taking place. So it'll be really interesting to see how that evolves over the, over the next five years and how everyone finds, according to their, their industry or their business, what is the right mix between working from home and having uh, an in-person presence. But one area I find very interesting is that uh, the flexibility of the technology has allowed an increasing share of Americans with disabilities to participate in the labor market. Mm -hmm. So we've seen a continued increase over the last two years of labor force participation by Americans with, with disabilities. I think that's a very, uh, a very positive uh, development. I know there have been some questions about Americans' willingness to work and reevaluating their willingness to work in the wake of the pandemic. I do, my view is that the, the numbers we discussed with respect to participation rates indicate that Americans are just as willy, willing as ever uh, to seek employment in the labor market. 
But I think there's also a difficult challenge in measurement, and that is a, for national statistical agencies and for economists will be a challenge for the year to come, which is how to correctly measure hours worked at home. Right, I can see that, that it's, it's very difficult every time you get up to, uh, to get something from the kitchen. Absolutely. And, well, and all the time that we used to spend commuting, we often right. add it to time actually working uh, at our homes. And so what, is, what, what are the actual number of hours we're putting into our jobs, which then translates into a different picture for um, the overall productivity of the labor force and productivity. That is really interesting. Um, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome and thank you.